Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Today we're speaking with two special guests, Pooja Panesser and Brooke Jadida. Pooja is a board-certified behavior analyst and the first professional to practice applied behavior analysis in East Africa. Brooke is a speech and language pathologist, psychologist, and clinical child neuropsychologist. Both of these phenomenal leaders are co-directors of Kaizora Center for Neurodevelopmental Therapies in Nairobi, Kenya, and Kaizora Child Development Center in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Pooja and Brooke compare the understanding of autism in Kenya and Tanzania and describe the challenges of educating families about evidence-based interventions. Parents in their communities often turn to religious practices before trusting science as they progress through different stages of grief. Back in 2010, when Kaizora was just Pooja and the Global Autism Project was just our CEO, Molly Ola Pinney, the two entrepreneurs supported each other to create what partnership with the Global Autism Project looks like today. You can hear Molly's side of the story in episode two. Over the years, Kaizora has established itself as the leading autism center in Africa. In April of 2019, Pooja and Brooke merged their services to provide affordable packages under one roof. Today, both of their centers in Kenya and Tanzania offer a range of services, including applied behavior analysis, speech therapy, occupational therapy, special education, and vocational training. I visited the center in Kenya twice last year and was inspired by the staff's dedication to their students' progress. Pooja and Brooke stress the importance of interdisciplinary collaboration, which they encourage by scheduling weekly training sessions led by alternating departments. In this conversation, Pooja and Brooke comment on each other's leadership styles and explain how they work together to balance out their strengths. Listening to them speak, I could sense the deep respect they have for each other as colleagues. They also provide insights on how to run a business with the right mindset and an open heart. A huge struggle for Kaizora has been to deliver quality services for families who cannot afford them. Pooja and Brooke have recently developed Kaizora Foundation, an organization aimed to raise funds for their centers and ensure that they will no longer have to turn children away. You can make a donation to their cause directly on their website, which I'll post in the show notes. We also discussed the impact of COVID-19 on Kaizora. Since recording this episode on April 7th, their center in Kenya has reopened its doors, taking extra precaution to use protective equipment and sanitize thoroughly. Understandably so, student attendance is not at regular capacity. Their center in Tanzania eventually had to close for an indefinite amount of time. Staff from Kenya are currently running online sessions for their students in Tanzania because they don't have enough laptops for therapists to use. They also continue to face challenges with unstable internet connections and frequent power outages. On this note, I would like to apologize for the inconsistent quality of our call. Unfortunately, we had some issues with the internet connection, but we've done our best to correct the sound, and I'm sure you will still find much value in Pooja and Brooke's story. 
The two co-directors are remaining positive and confident that they will come out of this crisis having learned innovative ways to run their organizations and will continue to support the families and their communities with whatever resources they have. In this episode, discover what's possible when team members effectively collaborate to transform people's lives. Now, I present you Pooja Panesser and Brooke Jadida. Welcome to the show, Pooja and Brooke. Thank you. Thank you. Before we talk about your background and how you got started in the field, I'd like to lay a framework for what services are available in Kenya and Tanzania. Could you describe a little bit about the attitudes and understanding of autism in both countries? I can start with Kenya. Okay. So in Kenya, there is definitely more knowledge than there used to be regarding what autism spectrum disorder is. There are some organizations creating awareness, and it also very much depends where in the country you are. In the urban areas, you find that there is better awareness, there is some knowledge on what autism is, and the education strives right now to inform parents on what evidence-based interventions look like, what their child needs, and trying to dispel myths around it. If you go into the rural areas, that's where you see more myths, and rather than looking into the medicine side of everything, there is more of the traditional healers, there's a lot of misconceptions around what autism is, around any developmental or mental disorder, actually. There's a lot of misconceptions regarding witchcraft and black magic and those kind of things. So trying to dispel those myths and misconceptions is important in those areas. Mm -hmm. And Brooke, would you say it's a similar understanding in Tanzania? I feel like in Kenya, we are a bit ahead uh, in terms of services and in terms of the beliefs, maybe, or the causes of autism. So when we look back and see the reason as to why we even had to go to Tanzania, it's because we had to go to Tanzania also and see where are they at. The services are quite less. We only have, I think, two pediatric neurologists who can diagnose autism in Tanzania. We have only two speech therapists who work in public hospitals, so they cannot be able to offer the services to everyone. We do not have a BCBA in Tanzania, so the services are less. People's understanding is also less on the courses of autism, on the services available. The schools also available for the children to go. So, yes, so Tanzania is a bit behind in terms of services and also in terms of awareness about autism. I think this April was the second time they wanted to do an awareness event this year, which now didn't happen because of COVID-19. So they've only done one awareness campaign about autism. Mm -hmm. Okay. The beliefs about it definitely is how we are now in the rural areas there. Of course, they believe in several reasons behind why someone has autism. They'll say it's witchcraft, like Pooja said. They'll believe in black magic. They'll believe it can be healed by traditional healers. It's just a different belief in what is the cause for autism and whether it has a cure or not. If it doesn't have a cure, they'll try to look for reasons why it doesn't have one, which will end up in slowing the interventions on the part of the children. Mm-hmm. And are these children ever in danger? Yes. 
I'll say yes, they are in danger, definitely. Even here in Kenya, some, uh, most, some are, and especially in rural areas. We hear stories that traumatize us for sure. Last year, I think there was a story of where they would actually believe that to cure autism and especially hyperactivity, they had to put this child in hot water Wow! until the child comes down, which of course that means when they come down, they are dead. Uh, so yes, that those beliefs, uh, there's some traditional medication they give, which definitely might counter the effects of what is being given maybe, or what the child requires, which is not okay. So yes, there is a lot of danger for that here, back here, and also in Tanzania, and especially in Tanzania. People actually leave Kenya to go to Tanzania for traditional healers. So yes, it's a lot more in Tanzania than here in Kenya also, but still happening even here in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Puja, did you have something to add? We actually encountered a lot of this last year when we had some awareness events, especially in a small town called Meru. And some of the children were leaving for their midterm and their breaks and parents were telling us where they're going. And one of them, I remember, was on their way to go see a traditional healer to drink something. And we have no idea what those things are. So it's happening. It's very real and it's happening all the time. Mm-hmm. When you hear about these stories, what is your response to parents? What is your plan of action to try and bring some more awareness to them that this is really a neurodevelopmental disability? We try and educate them and give them the facts and the knowledge. And this is what it actually is. We don't know the exact causes. And you try and break it down into very simple language that they're able to try and relate to it. These are the interventions that you need to seek out to help your child. But what we found was you can do all that once they've decided this is where they're going and that's what they want to do. They say, oh, thank you for the information, but we're still going here. Brooke? Yeah, but I also feel that either way, it's about us professionals. Yes, we will give them the knowledge, we'll give them the education, but we always feel like parents are going through grief which comes in phases where they still at a point where they're bargaining and they're trying to negotiate into trying everything they can before they get to the point of acceptance. And once they get to a point of acceptance, then they can easily have the intervention being done. But even though they're trying whatever they are trying, because they will, some of them now even live alone, the black magic, some of them will go to religious beliefs. We have even a case, actually one of the babies at the center was taken to the mosque and was left at the mosque with the imam and she needed to be trained on the Quran and to be trained to calm down. And they were saying that it works. So some will run to churches, some will run to their religious leaders, some will go to be prayed for. So there are still different ways where people will go through stages of grief. And once they reach to acceptance, then like this child came to us after, I think, seven weeks of, uh, Puja, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it was after seven weeks of staying in a mosque. And they said it worked, but they still came for interventions. When they came for the interventions, the baby was with us for some time and the dad was like, wow, she's really improved. She has done very well. 
he said all that, but still believes that there was something that happened. They'll still pray for this child. They'll still take this child to the mosque. They'll still, all those things. So I still feel like it's more of um, how they receive the news, what they believe in. We cannot change who we are. If we believe in religious beliefs, they'll still, first of all, want to run their fast and see what happens. I feel like all that happens is all grief. And once they hit a point where they can see they tried everything, they've gone to these people, they've been given all that, and nothing is working, then they run to interventions. And of course, once they come to intervention, they can see there is a bit of improvement. There is a bit of improvement, and they kind of believe that, yes, this is going to work. But within all that, we are doing a lot of campaigns. We were planning to do two in different counties this year. <laughs> so we are trying to do what we can to educate them. We are meeting with doctors. We are trying to do different CMEs and education to doctors, to pediatricians, telling them how to maybe break the news to these parents because also how much information they get at the beginning, of course, means a lot. If they meet the wrong person at the beginning, Again, we had another case of another baby who was tiptoeing. And because he was tiptoeing, met a pediatrician who interestingly went and took him to an orthopedic surgeon to be given something to stop him from tiptoeing. So that, of course, will bring a lot of grief to the parents because even when they come to us and we tell them it's autism, it's sensory, that's why they are tiptoeing. They've already been given another information, which is probably a quick fix than when you say it's autism. So, yeah, so we are trying what we can to educate everyone to at least get these parents to learn information in the right way at the right time, because probably grief will be less, if I may say that. Yeah. And as a parent as well, we have some very well-educated and well-to-do families that we work with who they're getting all the interventions that they need. But if they hear about something new, stem cell therapies and those kind of things, for example, they are going to try it because they don't want to have a regret later on that we didn't do that or we should have tried this as well. So any parent is going to try everything that they can do in the best interest of their child. Of course, yes. So how are these children treated in the communities? Are the parents taking them out to the store with them? Are they seen in public? There's actually a lot of stigma. Many families don't take the children out very much, many reasons. One is, especially for those who are not receiving adequate intervention, they're maybe hyperactive or they might have meltdowns in public and that creates even more stigma. It's difficult to handle and people around looking, we've had parents tell us about comments they've received even in supermarkets, you know, handle your child, you can't raise them properly, why are you having kids, things like that. But there's multiple reasons as to why you don't see them everywhere. Because they're not out very often, the awareness level is also remains low. It's one of the reasons when we started a Kaisara Autism Awareness events every year, one of the big part of the event is having a whole entertainment section with volunteers for all the kids on the spectrum, their siblings, whoever wants to come completely free of charge because they deserve that. Mm -hmm. So 
want to transition into your background and your specialization. How did you get started working in this field? Pooja, do you want to go first? Sure. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst, and with all the changes happening, I'm also a QBA and an international behavior analyst as well now, the new requirements. My background is in psychology. I have some biochemistry, and my master's is in education and ABA, which eventually led to the BCPA certification. How I ended up in this, I usually say that I didn't choose the field. I think the field chose me. I'm born and raised in Kenya, and I studied abroad when I came back. It was a parent of a child with a seven-year-old boy with autism who approached me and after seeing my CV when I was applying for jobs and asked me, hey, you have experience with kids with autism. Can you please help my son? This was in 2007, beginning of 2007. So I said, sure. So she came with a table and two chairs and I started working with him from there. And word of mouth spread, we got more kids. And then parents said, we need a full day set up. So I went and did some more training so that we're not opening another babysitting center. So carried on, turned to full day. And then we need speech therapy. We need OT. We need this. Start looking for consultants to come in. Basically, parents have always kind of guided the growth of this organization in the direction that it's had to evolve in. And we've just tried our best to meet those demands and meet those needs. And that's why we are where we are. Mm -hmm. And Brooke, what is your background in specialization? So I did clinical child neuropsychology, and then I did counseling psychology, and then I did my master's in speech and language pathology. So reason in the field is I, I lost my mom out of stroke. She had lost uh, movement, she lost speech, she lost um, everything. <laughs> so I started taking care of her when I was 14 years. And uh, I think at that time, there was only one physiotherapist in the town that I used to live in. And that's the only person who would come and work on her movement, her gross motor. But she lost speech and uh, they used to tell us if she would get a speech therapist, she'd be able to talk again. And there was no speech therapist at that time. So when I was in school, I wanted to do something to do with neurodevelopmental, which is, you know, what was um, affecting her almost everything. There was nothing to do with speech therapy in school. So I found clinical neuropsychology, which I did, but I ended up in a hospital for children. <laughs> so I started working with children and I met a speech therapist in that hospital who at that point trained me to be her assistant. So I was a speech therapist assistant. And then I went to do psychology. And finally, there was a course in master's in speech and language pathology in one of the local universities. So I enrolled. So it's been 10 years. And that is when I gained my experience. And I met Puja at Kaizora when I was offering speech therapy. And that is how we did the merge after some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tell us about the merger. That was last year, right? Last April? Yes, it's been a year. Mm -hmm. 
So as I mentioned, um, as Kaizora was growing and parents wanted different needs met, starting from they wanted full day because the children weren't doing well in the schools or accepted well in the schools that they weren't. So I went for some more courses, organized a full day schedule. And then I noticed as well that parents were having to leave the center to go to get occupational therapy, to get speech therapy. And there were so many children who required speech therapy that it made most sense to bring a speech therapist in. So we had um, a speech therapist that we used to work with who, after starting her family, decided to leave. I spent a couple of months looking for another speech therapist, and that's when I got referred to Brooke. So Brooke started coming to do therapies with the kids, and it was really interesting because I always feel like I've had this connection with children with autism and they're just so real. Mm-hmm. Not help but, you know, get, lose your heart to them. And I always had a, an effect with them. So they responded always really well to me. And when Brooke started, I saw the same kind of thing happening. The kids were doing really well. They liked working with her. And um, so we'd spent some time talking a lot over the different case studies, what the kids are working on, what we need to change, what we need to do, how we need to improve. And one of the things happening that time was a lot of the kids were going for stem cell therapy. So Brooke and I used to sit and be like, oh my gosh, what's happening? A lot of kids are going there. Is it worth it? We were doing our research. And then eventually Brooke was like, we need to go there and check it out. So I was like, okay, yeah, we'll go. And then she started coming into my office every day. Have you booked our flights? Are we going? Are you ready? Have we booked? Every day she would come and be like, have you booked? Have you booked? This is to India, right? The stem cells were being done there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is to India. So eventually I was like, oh my God, she's going on and on about this. I better just book this ticket. So <laughs> she stopped bugging me about it. <laughs> and actually everything started from there. Because when you're sitting on a flight for a while, it's been 10 days looking at interventions and, you know, everything um, on the way back, on the flight back, we were both like, so parents need all these therapies. You provide half, I provide half. Why are we doing that again? It becomes unaffordable for them. They're not all getting what they need. Why don't we just merge everything that we're doing together and create packages for parents that are affordable and their kids are getting everything under one roof? Mm-hmm. So. We're also very quick on things. We get an idea and we kind of run, you know, sometimes a bit too fast. (laughs) And by the time we landed, we decided this is what we're doing. And we just got started on the process. And so now at Kaisora, so you have ABA, speech. What other therapies do you offer? So we have all the therapies, actually, Mm -hmm. (laughs) including an interdisciplinary assessment and diagnosis. So because we have a center in Tanzania with one of our partners who is a pediatric neurologist, so Dr. Kija, because we go there, we made sure that he's also coming here. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. he usually comes and the three of us, at least we do once in three months, we do a diagnosis um, multidisciplinary approach where the three of us will sit and we'll have, you know, clinics where people can come and, you know, we can try to do a diagnosis. And then we have occupational therapy, we have physiotherapy, we have special education for those who are almost ready for transitioning. Um, What else? 
BA speech vocations. Yes. Yeah, I just want to share with the listeners that I've been to your center in Nairobi, Kenya, I think at least twice, twice last year. And the skill core team that I went with, we were all so impressed with how well your team works together. Could you share how you encourage collaboration between the different approaches? So initially, it was something because each profession has its own jargon. And trying to learn everyone's language was really something. So we had daily trainings and we had schedules set out where we'd have the speech therapists doing trainings, the occupational therapists doing trainings, ABA. Basically, every department had to present at some point in a daily schedule. So starting from there, each department started to learn something about the other departments. And we also got to realize, wow, there's so much overlap. A lot of our goals are the same. If you did this and I did this, the child would do so well. So we got that first, the education part sorted out where everyone could be on a similar level, even though they're experts in their field, but they still understand the other fields and the importance of those therapies. And then... We have case management teams for each child. So if a child is receiving, for example, occupational therapy, ABA, and speech therapy, they would have one person in charge, but then they would also have a person from each department in charge. So there's somebody organizing the therapies in each department, and then a person who's overlooking and making sure that the goals are all streamlined and everything makes sense. And then they have regular meetings with the clinical manager as well, who supervises how the progress is going and everything comes to us from there as well. So the biggest thing was helping everyone understand the importance of each other's therapies and how when working together, we move so much faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's great advice that even a lot of professionals in the U.S. could benefit from. Because sometimes there can be a lot of egos and clashes in people thinking that their therapy is better than someone else's therapy. But it was so beautiful to see how at Kaizora, there wasn't anything like that. There wasn't that attitude. And it was really fascinating for me as a BCBA to see how the OTs, the occupational therapists, were working with their kids. I was getting so many ideas There was an activity the occupational therapist was doing, and he was using the big bouncy ball to have the student roll on his back. And I would have never thought to do something like that, you know, so it's really great for everyone to just get ideas from each other. Yeah, I think even here we have that sometimes, but we have those kind of things also in Kenya where, or even in Tanzania, where one therapist feels like they do better or this is my way, this is my job, this is where I'm supposed to do. Even at some point, we even had OTs who would say they can do speech therapy, speech therapists who can say they're working on concentration and attention and all that kind of thing. But I think once they come to us, even when we are doing the first interviews with Puja, we make sure that we tell them they have to work as a team. 
And even now, every child that I even see at the hospital, one of the hospitals that I consult at, and the child probably is quite hyperactive, has problem behaviors. I actually refuse to see them for speech therapy. And I tell them they have to first of all see a BCBA and an OT before I see them for speech. Because of course they come and they tell me, no, we just need speech therapy. We don't want anything else. But if you don't educate that parent, that you cannot work alone as a therapist, even as a speech therapist, then the parent will not see the need for the other professionals. But once I tell them that and I tell them, no, we have to put speech therapy on hold then, then start with these other therapies. Then they can actually see the importance of the other therapies. And we've also taught our staff that they have to work together. If you're the OT and you're having difficulties with a child who is not, you know, settling down, who is not speaking, then you need the other therapist. And I think they've also learned that. So they can see the importance of the interdisciplinary that is happening. And then they come, every new person who comes, comes to the same culture. Mm-hmm. What were some breakthroughs you had to go through to get to certain milestones for the organization or maybe for your career? Personally, there were many. Initially, when I started, I mentioned the, the seven-year-old boy that I started working with. I had some ABA experience from Canada. And so when I came, it wasn't new, but I wasn't an expert at that time. And I tried to ensure that I stayed in touch with my professor in Canada to keep getting advice on how to work with the kids that I was getting. But at the same time, I felt it was very important to make sure I get the education and the qualification needed to do this right. I didn't want to call myself an expert in an area that I'm not qualified to be. So one of the biggest issues was financial at that time. And I tried really hard trying to get scholarships, trying to get I got networking with a number of people and through the network is how I was introduced to um, Mary Brady uh, University of Massachusetts in Boston and they actually did not have an online ABA program at the time but still based on the work I was doing here they gave me a scholarship and made provisions for me to learn through online streaming at that time so it was Incredible. That was one of the biggest breakthroughs. And then to become a BCBA, you need 1,500 hours of supervision. And obviously, if you have the coursework, and at that time, there was no BCBA in the whole of Africa who could supervise my hours. So that's when I got working with Molly as well with the Global Autism Project. And my supervision was amazing because I had amazing supervisors. One of them, she was brilliant. And then I got to travel for conventions of the US where I would get more hours face to face from their virtual hours, videos. It was quite something to get to the qualification of getting my BCBA. I was lucky at that time in the sense that the BCBA exam was offered locally. Now it's not even offered locally. That time it was, so I managed sitting the exam here. That was a journey. And you were the first BCBA in the whole continent of Africa, right? No, not on the continent. Okay. Um, definitely East Africa. There was someone in Nigeria, but I believe they lived in the States. Um, yeah, there weren't many, very, very few. So that was definitely something. And then also, as you're growing as an organization, I mean, my education, my passion is in 
ABA and, and the therapies for these kids. Yet, when you want to do this, you end up running a business. And that sometimes is not everyone's cup of tea, especially if you're a bit soft-hearted with things and, you know, you can easily be taken for a ride. So those are some of the things dealing with was not always easy. And yeah, but otherwise it's been an interesting journey meeting Brooke on the way and everything that we have done since then as well. Mm -hmm. Brooke, do you have anything to share? I think it's been a challenge. I don't know whether this is just something that happens here, but we also have a way of even therapists fighting each other and talking very bad things about each other, which is something I think I've found as a very huge challenge. I don't know whether it's just Kenya, but even in Tanzania, I find that similar things almost happening. But I feel like Kenya is more where therapists really fight each other. I think at some point where even one of the therapists would call other parents and tell them, oh, don't go see this person. They didn't go abroad for their studies, so they don't know what they are doing or they're not very well qualified to do what they're doing. It's been a tough one. But I think I've always had this strength where I just move on and not look back or listen to what people are saying. And I found Puja and I found we have kind of similarities, things together where we don't mind what people are saying. You just move as far as you're doing your good, you move on and you just do the best you can for these children. You see the progress. We are always eager to learn. We always learn new things. Sometimes you'll find us looking for OT things to do or different things to do or, you know, we really enjoy the clinics where we just go and sit in with a neuro clinic with a pediatric neurologist and just listen and learn new things. And we are always eager to learn. So I think that is just one of our in-build in initiative that we always do, which I love because we keep learning new things every day. And uh, you forget about that. You see the progress in children and you just move on. And just that is what makes us happy. As far as you see a child who is moving from one point to another, it's just an amazing journey, I feel. And just like Pucha said, of course, we love what we do. We love therapy. We love doing that. But at the end of the day, it's still a business and you have to run it. You have to pay your staff. You have to pay your bills. So you still have to charge and you still have to deal with all these people saying, oh, you're running a multi-billionaire company while you're even just trying to make and meet. <laughs> you know, so yeah. So those I think are the most the challenges. But um, at the end of the day, we see uh, progress in these children and that's, that's what makes us move on. Mm -hmm. How is your leadership style similar or different? Wow. <laughs> I, I think we have kind of the same personality maybe as our first point, but our second personality is totally different. <laughs> Puja is more of a people person, which is what I love about her. And that's what I sometimes will push back myself and let her deal with mostly, I would actually say the stuff. Sometimes I'm too harsh, I think, <laughs> or I've been told. Uh, so I kind of lean back and let Puja take that part. Yeah, Puja. The other thing I think that's quite interesting is Brooke is fierce when it comes to we're going, we're doing, we're doing, we're as a go-getter. 
Whereas I'm the one who will sit and be like, let's weigh out the pros and cons about this. What's right? Why should we do it? Not. So it's been a really good balance because she pulls me forward. But at the same time, I kind of hold her back a little bit in the sense of, let's think it through a little bit more. So (laughs) you'll see just in the past year since the merger, I mean, we've started three organizations in a year and so much has happened. But yet we've been able to do it well because of that balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the balance is amazing. I move fast and I'll think of an idea, which is also something that we have similar. We think of an idea, we move with it. But Puja will be one of the people who will be like, hold on, Brooke. (laughs) Can we just (laughs) think about this first? Let's see where is it going. And I think that has really helped us in a way. But I think for now, we'd have had like 10 organizations at a go. But mm-hmm. <laughs> Pridja will always be like, uh, let's let's take this year and let's make sure the three organizations are well and they're fine and they're doing well before we move on. But I think definitely the balance of different personalities has really helped. Sometimes I'll be very happy. I'll give her an idea, tell her, run with it. She'll run with it and I'll now be like, okay, now she has it. Let her run with that. Yeah, and that has really helped us. We also, we're quite good at picking up for each other. If, you know, sometimes when you have that many things you're juggling in the air, it's easy to let some things slip. But when we feel that's happening, the other always comes to pick it up really nicely. So we we have each other's back in that sense. Even on bad days, if one of us is having a bad day, the other one just kind of takes over for for that person. It's it's nice to have that backup. You said you have three organizations. So you, there's the Kaizora in Nairobi, Kaizora in Dar es Salaam. What's the third one? So one of the challenges we came across starting all these organizations, like we said, our hearts in it. Um, we're not getting funding from the government because we're a private organization. You look at grants and all those kind of things, and we're not eligible because we're a private organization. And that was quite frustrating for us because we have clients coming out to reach us for help and we do as much as we can but there's a limitation as to how much we're able to do out of pocket so we started kaizora foundation which strives to raise funds to help those who need therapies who need support who need equipment but they're unable to afford it great i'll put a link to that foundation in our show notes yeah people want to donate that'd be great thank you So you're saying that parents pay out of pocket. How do you deal with having to say no to parents who can't afford to pay? Yeah, I think that's our weakness, where we are not able to do that sometimes. (laughs) We end up saying yes, yes. And I think that's where we decided to do the foundation, because we realized we are saying yes, yet we have, currently, I think, Puja, we have over 45 staff. That's both Kenya and Tanzania. We realized we have more staff than even the kids we have. And we were not able to balance the whole, you know. So that's why we started the foundation. If we get sponsors, if we get donors, then the children we cannot say no to. We can try to put them on the foundation and then get them to run a few sessions until we run out. Still, I think the foundation is quite young. It's less than six months. So that's why we started the foundation. Mm -hmm. Having said that, 
there are obviously those who sign up, we'll pay next week, we'll pay next week, we'll pay next month. And we have run ourselves quite low in that sense. We have parents who owe us. It's always a last straw by the time we're sending a child home. It is something we avoid as much as we can. But you, there are times we find ourselves in situations where it's like, it, it's not fair anymore. We're doing the best in providing a service we can with wholeheartedly, you know, with everything that we have. We, we love these kids. We put everything in them. We honestly do. So we do need the money coming in to make the place run. Otherwise, everybody loses services that we're offering services to. If mm-hmm. the ship is not sailing smoothly, everybody's going to suffer. So we have reached points where we've had to send kids home, not happily. Some parents have disappeared on us, leaving us in debt at times, unfortunately. And you can't track them, you can't trace them. But there are those who also really, really believe in us. And they make sure even if it's late payments come in and that things are okay. And we feel we are a family. And they find it important to sustain us so that we can continue helping their children. And they're seeing the progress. So we have a wonderful family. Some parents have been with us for a while and the kids have made tremendous progress. They're in their vacation programs. Some of them are doing internships and it's wonderful to get there. Unfortunately, you do get the few that leave you in difficult positions. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit. Could you tell us about your partnership with the Global Autism Project? What has that been like for both of you to be partners? And I think I can start on that one. Molly and I started talking in 2010. So this is when Kaizora at that time was me, basically. Um, And the Global Autism Project was Molly on her own. So we would end up having Skype sessions and she would train me on some new strategies online. Like I mentioned, at that time, I didn't have all the qualifications I needed. I was looking for help and trying to make sure I'm on the right path. So she provided a lot of that support, but she also provided a lot of encouragement and reassurance that what I'm doing was good, was right. I had some self-doubt. When you're in a country where nobody knows what ABA is, they barely know what autism is, and you're trying to do this thing, it gets lonely. And sometimes you're like, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. And she was always there to be like, wow, you're doing fantastic. And then when SkillCore started, sending in all those teams. It's been a journey where I think we have grown together. We've grown a lot together and both of us have benefited a lot from this relationship. Kaizora has grown in terms of understanding business management, the therapies, ABA supervision, my supervision. It's been quite something. Mm -hmm. And Brooke, I know you just came on last year, but you attended Global Summit last August in Bali. Yeah. What was that like for you? I think it was amazing. It was really amazing to meet all these other partners and listen to them and hear that the challenges we are also facing are the same challenges that they're actually facing. It makes you feel like you're not alone, regardless of whether you're in your country and you feel maybe you're the only one, but then you realize it's actually something that is global. 
and I think we've learned a lot. And I'm um, usually very, we were really waiting for the skill coach to go to Tanzania. I think that is what I was really, really hoping for because I see what the staff learn. We really invest a lot in our staff trainings and having the skill co come and train our staff and learn new things. And it really makes us feel happy. And we can see that they're actually benefiting a lot in that sense. I think I met SkillCore definitely or Global Autism Project when I started coming for consultations in Kaizora. I would come and I would see these people just looking at me when we are running sessions and I would not understand until I had to get it from Puja. Like, yeah, they, they will come three times a year. And that's how I try to understand. And uh, it's been amazing. It's been amazing. Their trainings and all that. It's been quite helpful. Good. I think um, one of the other things that's really great is whenever SkillCore comes, it also keeps us in check because we are also being evaluated. We're being assessed at the center of excellence and it helps us recognize any gaps that we have and how we're moving on to filling in those gaps. And I feel good about it because when we're evaluated and we go through everything, we have an understanding of where we need to be, but also we get that insurance that we're doing good. We're doing a good job. We're on the right track. It's nice to have somebody come and keep us on our toes. And it's definitely a two-way exchange. Skill core teams learn so much from the partners whenever we go on the trips. We learn even clinical strategies that we weren't doing before. And we also learn the value of teamwork, especially at Kaizora when we see how well you guys work together. So I want to transition now to talking about the current events globally and how the coronavirus has impacted your center. So just to give a reference, we're recording this on April 7th. And here in Spain, we're approaching one month in mandated lockdown. Could you tell us a little bit about what the situation is like in Kenya and how you have had to adapt what you're doing for students and families? It's been quite a journey. After we got our first cases here, which was in March, a lot of families opted not to send their kids anymore, which was fine. We completely understood. It was about mid-March when we decided that we're no longer going to keep the center open because we don't want to create a risky environment as well. Exposure of the staff, the kids. One case comes here, we don't want to be the cause of an outbreak as well. So we closed up and we spent an extra one or two days working with a small group of therapists in creating online programs. So we taught them how to use Zoom, how to run a session online, and we started working out home programs for all the parents because what happened is also not all the parents have signed up for the online sessions. So there's a small group who are running sessions every day. We've had a fair bit of challenges getting that running smoothly as well. Power outages, because the therapists are running everything from home, they didn't have laptops or so taking laptops from the center. Sometimes they're not the best, but trying to make do with what we do have, getting internet connections in their houses so that they can run sessions. And then whenever there's any issues, we trying to problem solve on the spot as well. So we meet every day after sessions. We have our own Zoom call. We talk about how the sessions went, who's running sessions tomorrow. 
it's been interesting it's been really fun in the sense that this is something new and it's nice to learn something new how to do this online and it could be an avenue we're looking at in the future as well even past covid-19 but it came at a point of necessity but it's also nice we have the online programs where we have weekly programs we're putting up for parents so that they have access to resources and activities that they can have with the children and so that they're not idle we don't want to see the kids regress that's the biggest fear that we do have when you put in so much and then you see them regress it's it's painful mm-hmm. it's really painful so we're trying to keep the situation at kind of a balance and equilibrium so even if they're not having sessions at least keep them where they are let's retain what we've worked on and we can resume when we move on from there but for those who are running online sessions they're going beautifully the kids are doing well they're also learning new skills so that's going really really well and let Brooke talk about Tanzania as well well for Tanzania the numbers are not quite high the number of covid-19 patients are not quite high as they are here in Kenya So I think the numbers are still at 22 if I'm not wrong the last time I checked. So the center is still open but of course there has been a huge impact from 21 children to 4. So we only have four children coming for the center and most of them are just the ones who are doing mostly occupational therapy and physio because they still have to go physically to the center. but it's been a challenge because definitely we also had to reduce the number of staff and that of course it's also a huge financial constraints to us because we have to still pay rent for these places the centers we still have to pay the bills Tanzania i think currently we only have five staff now going with the four kids and of course the way the numbers are moving forward we feel like it might end up the same way as Kenya is right now we might probably go on a lockdown we are on a place where we've just been locked out if you're in this county you cannot move to this other county we hope for the best but definitely Tanzania is um also moving where we are currently in Kenya so we can definitely foresee a closure soon we also don't want an outbreak in one of the centers or something like that and uh, we also scared about our staff they use public transport they're moving into public areas and we also have to make sure that they are also not at risk mm-hmm. yeah so definitely it has impacted um we ourselves at puja we were supposed to be in dar es salaam in april we would go there we had just increased the number of days that we were supposed to stay there we would do two weeks just to make sure that the center is also running well and now we are here and we can't go there and of course it does affect us a lot we're like what's going on is everything going okay and um yeah so it's been a huge impact but the online sessions are uh, honestly i do thank puja so much and the therapist running the zoom calls wow i just told her yeah let's do telemedicine and then i left i didn't know what else to do except just give her that and then run away from that <sighs> but she's taken it and the therapists are amazing i cannot just thank them also enough because they picked it quite fast um and the way they're running we just had to guide them i think within a few hours and we just like you have to run the sessions now and they just run with it and they're doing amazing 
We also have seven kids who also want online sessions from Tanzania. And because we can't go there and train our staff in Tanzania, we're just making sure that our staff here in Kenya are the ones still running sessions in Tanzania. But, you know, we just have to make sure our kids don't regress. We don't know how long it's going to take. Sometime back in December, we only closed the center for two weeks and the kids came regressed. And that's what we're trying to avoid because we don't know how long this is going to take. So, yeah. yeah. The other challenge we have in Tanzania, so I was on with one of the therapists yesterday, the two of the therapists, they're trying to show them how to work Zoom and it's a brand new concept but we only have one functioning laptop. So how are we supposed to start having those therapists providing therapy there? And there's only one functioning laptop at the moment. So, you know, it's not just about the online sessions, but the, the issues that are arising around that as well. It's, it's new. It's, I'm sure we will get past this as a center, as a country, as the world. <laughs> we have to. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we're out okay on the other side. Yeah. And this may be a hard question to think about, but what do you envision for the short term and long term for both centers? Surviving. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, I think everyone's in survival mode, making sure we get past it. Um, I think one of the things that kind of is on my mind constantly is I really want us to be able to make sure that our staff is okay as well through this time. It's a very, very heavy and difficult decision to tell staff that you're going to have to go on unpaid leave. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know if we're going to be able to pay rent. Hopefully we don't have to, but we don't know. We don't know what the situation is going to be, and we don't know how we're going to be able to sustain ourselves in order to sustain you as well. So that has been very heavy for me. I hope that we can do our best in making sure that they can meet their basic necessities, if nothing else. Yeah, it was a heavy decision to make. But like I said, even before the COVID-19, you're still trying to manage paying your expenses, paying rent, paying the staff. And then here comes no income whatsoever. So you have to be, yes, optimistic. And you have to be like, yes, everything will work out well. But it's still a big challenge. What do you do? Where do you get the money to pay rent? You're not in a free place. You have to pay the person rent. Hopefully, you know, you wait or see if even the owner of that place will be understanding, but still you also have to also think about them. Maybe that's their only way of income also. So you don't know. So it's just, I think just the way Pooja said, we, we are surviving right now. We just have to survive. Long term, let's look long term. That's all short term. I think everyone's just, it's so hard to think about long term because this short term pandemic is just, hopefully it's short term, has just thrown everyone off. But long term, we hope to have centers in both countries, hopefully more than just one that we have right now because we are being asked to open in different areas. So being able to expand into different areas so that travel is easier for the clients, but then also ensuring that these therapy centers are offering the best services. The client's well-being is the 
topmost priority and being able to see them progress. But also being successful in that sense, being able to provide the staff with professional development, being able to provide the community with awareness, with education on what's happening, have the foundation thrive so that we can see many, 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 many children benefit as well and, you know, make a difference, change a life. I think if we can achieve that, we, we're good to retire. <laughs> I can move on to the next life in peace. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to wrap up here in a little bit, but I just want to close with the last question. Do you have any advice to professionals who are thinking of opening up their own center or are in the early years of their business? Um, it's, it's not an easy task. You're going to face challenges just as with any other business. There are moments of success. There are moments of distress, but it is important. If you're going to do this, you have to be ready to persevere. Don't start something where you're going to let people down as well. Have strong ethics. Have, have the heart for it and do it right. I think for me, I would actually say it calls for a heart. <laughs> you must have a heart to do this work. If you're doing it just because you want a business, unfortunately, you won't go so far. Even in Tanzania, the three of us as the three directors for a whole one year, we even paid, and, and for Tanzania, it's interesting because you pay rent for six months or for a year, and we had to do it out of pocket. If you're thinking you're doing it for profit or something like that, you're going to fail so badly because it's not easy. It's really tough. I think if we were not, the three of us would not have survived if it was one of us, I think. We kept encouraging each other. It's fine. We're doing, we're changing lives. It's something that... If you don't have the heart for it, you will not succeed. It's true. If you're in it for the wrong reasons, there are many other options. Don't do this then. <laughs> but if this is something that you're going to do, then it should be because you're passionate about it. And if you do something wholeheartedly, I believe everything else falls into place. Yeah. Yes, you need the heart. Because if you just do it for business-wise and profit-making, then you will not. We are very ethical in a way that even the people we hire must have the qualifications that we are looking for, which of course it comes with a price. You have to pay these people well, you have to maintain them. And it gets tough because like I said, we end up having more stuff, maybe more than even the kids who are at the center, which of course it becomes quite expensive. It's an expensive thing to run. But if you have the heart for it, then definitely you you're going to make changes in children's life and that will make you you know happy at the end of the day well both of you working together is a model for other co-directors it's very admirable how even though you have somewhat different leadership styles you still balance each other out and i think having been to your center i see how the staff really respect you and they follow what the mission of the organization is because of the model that you're giving them. Thank you. Yeah, Pooja and Brooke, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for having us. Mm -hmm. I'll be sure to put links to your website on our show notes so people who are interested in your work can go take a look as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Pooja and Brooke. I admire their will to persevere and their commitment to dispelling the myths of autism in their communities. A common struggle I hear from some parents across cultures is that they do not feel comfortable taking their children out in public because they may exhibit behaviors that make them stand out, such as engaging in loud tantrums. Parents may not feel confident that they can manage problem behaviors in public and may want to avoid any judgment from strangers. However, leaving these kids at home slows down the spread of autism awareness. Some of these communities are not accustomed to seeing people with disabilities at grocery stores or restaurants. A possible solution could be for practitioners to train parents on how to manage challenging behaviors across different settings. A specific goal about community outings could be built into an individualized program. I know it's not easy. However, by empowering caregivers with proper tools and strategies, we can encourage them to teach their children important life skills while also educating locals. Kaizora holds special events for all kids to join, ensuring that volunteers are available to help support those with special needs so that they too can participate in fun activities. Lastly, I want to applaud Pooja and Brooke for their exceptional leadership skills. Together, they have fostered a strong foundation of teamwork and cooperation among their staff. As the range of service providers that work with individuals with autism grows, we all need to counter the notion of professional centrism. This is a preferred view of the world held by a particular occupational group, which leads to a bias valuing their profession as more important than that of others. Instead, we should embrace the diverse professional cultures of our colleagues and keep an open mind to learn from each other. Using a multidisciplinary approach can be a key factor in increasing the well-being of those we advocate for. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. Thanks for listening. Take care. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.